It's been a year when we've heard a lot about North Korea. It's often been in the news, and it continues to be in the news, even this week, with uh, new reports, new developments. But as much as we hear uh, in the news about North Korea, there's a lot that we don't hear. Uh, there are stories that aren't uh, told, and I'd uh, like to share one of, you, one of them with you this morning. You know that security uh, along the borders of North Korea, both in, uh, with its uh, uh, neighbor, uh, with South Korea, as well as with China, border, the, the border is tight. Uh, the tensions run high. Uh, you have people on either side uh, with trained military scopes examining, looking for movements, looking for uh, any, any signs that there are uh, changes afoot or things that are happening. And uh, as a result, very few people go from one side to another. Getting across is uh, slow and there are uh, great, uh, great checks to make sure that, uh, that nothing, uh, nothing or no one passes that shouldn't. And even once you're inside the country and once you're inside North Korea, the checkpoints continue and there are uh, additional uh, challenges and security all across the country is very tight. Uh, despite that, a brave uh, Korean Christian, uh, known only as the traveler, has for many, many years now uh, traveled into North Korea with books, commentaries, with training and encouragement for the underground church in North Korea. Uh, although he serves a ministry called uh, Open Doors, no one in the organization actually knows his real name. Uh, if he were to be discovered, if his identity were to be known, uh, it would mean almost certain, certainly uh, torture, perhaps even death. And yet he continues to take these risks. Uh, Carl Moeller and David Hagg tell his story in a book called The Privilege of Persecution. And in it, you hear the traveler describing uh, accounts of what the persecution is. Uh, he describes the accounts of government attempts to wipe out Christianity in the 50s. and He talks of entire congregations being herded out into the streets and run over with bulldozers. Terrible stories of persecution. And yet, amidst all of that, the traveler continues to travel at great personal risk, at great personal cost, uh, living in the, the fear of uh, all that is around, and yet living without fear, uh, continuing to serve with, with confidence. And as you hear him describe the rea reality of the the sacrifices that he makes and the cost that there is to serve, you can't help but wonder, like, what is that? Like, does, does he serve a different God? Does he have, like, a different faith? How is it that he can put his life on the line day in and day out and we struggle to, to open our mouths to, to share just this little, little testimony to Jesus Christ for fear that, our friends and our family may not like us as much. How is it that, that he's able to literally 
face death uh, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and we struggle to find nursery workers and people to serve once a month as, as ushers. What is that? What motivates him to do what he does? How does he go on? Sometimes I think people, people think, maybe there's some secret to the Christian life There's some secret teaching, secret experience that I just haven't gotten yet. And when I get that, then like everything's going to be different. And so they passively wait for that secret teaching to drop in their lap or that secret experience to hit them. And yet what the Bible says uh, is that not so much that there is some secret teaching that we're to wait for, but that the Christian life consists of returning to the foundation and grasping that foundation with, uh, in, in its fullness and resp- responding to it with uh, the weight and the clarity that it deserves. Today's passage uh, looks at that foundation. Today we begin a series that will, will take us right through the summer looking at the uh, letter of 1 Thessalonians. And the, the church in Thessalonica wasn't quite North Korea. It wasn't quite what the traveler experienced, but they were a church that was born in persecution. They were born in opposition. And it was clear from the very onset that life wasn't going to be easy. And yet they experienced a, the, the same kind of living hope that the traveler demonstrated. And today's passage looks at the heart of that hope, at the foundation of that hope. And uh, so we'll, we'll look at it together. If you have your Bibles, we are going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. If you want to look at your, in the uh, pew Bibles in the rack in front of you, uh, it's on page Uh, 927, and I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. Now, what I read is the beginning of a letter. It was a letter written from Paul to a church in a city called Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica was the capital city of uh, a province of Rome, a Greek province known as Macedonia. It's a church that Paul had planted in that city. And what had happened was he had gone into that city, um, proclaimed the gospel, stayed, stayed for three weeks, and over that three weeks, a number of people put their faith in Christ, fought, began to, be, uh, to, to become followers of Jesus, and yet after those three weeks, Paul was run out of town. Wanting for them to grow, he, he, as he got out of there uh, and was able to get to, uh, get to safety, get to another location, he sent Timothy, uh, one of his co-workers, and Timothy went and encouraged them and built them up, taught them, and then he returned to Paul and brought a report to him. So now Paul has heard that report from Timothy. About a year has passed since he, he made his initial visit, and now he's writing this letter that we're, we just read, that letter to, uh, back to the church in response. So he's heard the report, and there are some issues, but the, what is clear is that this church has a faith that is real and alive, that good things are happening, and there are good reports circulating about, uh, about them. But in giving thanks for them, he points to the evidence of their faith and also the foundation of their faith. He, he shows us what the foundation of a living hope really looks at. And so the first thing he shows is that a living hope experiences the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is important because some people never quite get it, never quite see the, what, what this gospel or what this good news is really all about. Other people hear it, they might understand it, but they don't feel the power of it. They don't, they don't see its, its power or rele- relevance in their lives. They don't feel the gospel. But, a living, but a, a living hope experiences the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see how this is developed in the letter. Look at verse 5. I love this phrase here. It says, our gospel came to you. We don't usually talk like that. When you're talking about thoughts and ideas, you don't usually talk about them coming to a person. or it, 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 It's like he's describing the gospel as some living thing that, that comes and visits people and impacts them and changes them. As basic as it is, many people, even those who call themselves Christians, can miss this gospel. The gospel still hasn't come to them. It hasn't visited them. The word gospel here simply means announcement of good news. If you, were, if you were, had not been exposed to the church and you were in first century uh, Thessalonica and you heard the word gospel, the most common way it was used was uh, they would have heralds going out throughout the Roman Empire announcing the good news and great exploits of the emperor. Maybe it was a military conquest. Maybe it was a political achievement. Maybe there had just been some large building uh, erected. And, and so heralds would be sent out and they would proclaim the gospel of the emperor, the, the good news about something that he had accomplished. But as you come to the scriptures, the gospel, the good news is always about Jesus Christ. It's always about what he has done for us. And what he has done, this gospel, this good news is to be right at the center, central to our understanding of the Christian life and how we relate to God. 
Specifically, the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for sinners so that by turning to Jesus in faith, people who otherwise would deserve judgment receive a pardon. They receive forgiveness. And forgiveness as a free gift, as a free gift of grace that they might start a new life with God. Too many churches take this good news, this gospel announcement, and either remove it or just push it off to the side. And when the gospel gets pushed off to the side, the most natural thing to replace it is moralism. Moralism is the idea that we can somehow earn God's approval by reforming ourselves morally, by improving ourselves ethically. Moralism tells people to try harder in order to earn God's approval. Moralism either tends to make people proud and critical if they're kind of making more progress than the people around them, or moralism will make people feel defeated and frustrated if they're not quite seeming to measure up to the people that they see. Often it does both at the same time. Often it will make people proud and critical as well as feeling defeated and frustrated. I wonder whether you trust in the gospel or moralism. I wonder which one is central in your understanding of God and his will for your life. Is your hope in the good news about Jesus or in the hard work of your moral effort? Has the gospel come to you in the way that it did to the Thessalonians? Sometimes what happens is that people understand the gospel. Of course I know, Jesus died for us. But they don't feel its power. They don't understand its relevance. They may be able to correctly define it and and recite it, but they're never able to quite connect the dots between this good news about Jesus Christ and the life that they're living. And as a result, it doesn't move them and it doesn't change them. Something different than that that happened in Thessalonica. Verse 5 says, Our gospel came to you, but it says, It came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel wasn't just words to them. It was words. It was, the word gospel is announcement. It is a declaration of good news, but it wasn't just words. The gospel impacted them. They felt its power. The Holy Spirit brought conviction in their lives. Conviction that their sins were such that they needed a Savior. And, and the Holy Spirit also not only con- convicted them of their own sin, but convinced them that Jesus is that Savior who forgives. He is that one who offers eternal life. And they responded in repent- repentance and trust. They put their lives in Jesus' hands and said, said, He's my hope. He's the one I trust. He's the one as I lift up. They had the firm conviction of verse 4, where it says that they are loved by God and chosen by him. And that love of God began to change them. It began to affect them. It, it, it stirred them from within so that they desired new things. They, they began to seek after the things of God. Only a year has passed since they heard the good news, but in verse 3, Paul talks about their faith, and it, he talks about their work of faith, 
labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Notice they're not working for their faith. They're not laboring for God's love. These things are an overflow of the the new life that God has given them. It says that the faith moved them to good works. That's what it, it, it means. The, the love that they had received from Jesus made them want to labor for him, made them want to serve him. And the hope that he brought them gave them the strength to press on. That was, that was the fuel that charged their motivation, that, that moved them to, to, to see the opposition, not to ignore the challenges that were around them, but it was that love that they had received, the free grace of Jesus Christ that made them want to respond with their lives, to give of themselves. And it changed them. It's the same thing that changed the North Korean traveler. It's the same thing that gives him the the desire to not shrink back at the cost, the sacrifices. It's the same thing that moves him to want to make Christ known to others, to offer that life and that good news, to be that herald of all that Jesus has done. Is the gospel changing you? Does the free offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ impact who you are, how you see this world? Do you feel the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Max Lucado describes what it's like when we stop feeling the gospel. We stop putting it in the center and somehow let it get to to the side somewhere, lose its prominence in our lives. He, he, he gained this awareness by a very unfortunate ex, um, experience. He received a letter telling him that he was being dropped by his insurance company. Uh, he had had one too many traffic tickets. And in addition to that, he was in an accident. And his insurance company eventually sent him a letter and said, We've, we've had enough. Uh, they've asked him actually to seek coverage elsewhere. And he received this letter and he felt the shame. He felt the, the sense of not measuring up, uh, the f- sense that I don't know where I will get coverage. And he said, that's exactly how many people relate to God. That's exactly what happens when the gospel gets moved off to the side or gets ignored in the Christian life. And so he sat down and he imagined what it would be like to receive, not the letter from the insurance company, but if he were to receive a letter from God uh, with that same sense. And he, he imagined the letter like this. Dear Mrs. Smith, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you, you've reached your quota of sins. Our records show that since implying our services, you have erred seven times in the area of greed. And your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of of doctrine is in the lower 20th percentile. And you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are a high-risk candidate for heaven. You understand, grace has its limits. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find 
some other form of coverage. This, this is the feeling. These are the thoughts that ruminate around in our heads when the gospel fades from view. When you start relating to God with that mindset of moralism, that I need to earn his approval, I need to somehow attain his forgiveness. It's offered freely, but it's offered freely to those who would repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you have a living hope that experiences the gospel? And do you experience it with power? Do you feel the gospel rather than just understanding it? Has it become more than words to you? Do you see it expressed in your life? Do you see it changing how you live? The second foundation of a living hope is that it follows Jesus into suffering with joy from the Holy Spirit. Many people's lives is set up to avoid every and any kind of uh, pain or, or difficulty. And it's not that anybody, we're not saying that people are, are inviting suffering, that people are supposed to go looking for suffering. But a living hope follows Jesus into suffering. It doesn't shrink back from suffering. And when it faces it, it faces it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, Paul says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your, for your sake. But we read that and we're like, Well, actually, I, I don't know, Paul, what, you, you, what kind of lives you and, and your co-workers uh, lived among the Thessalonians. You, you might not know what kind of life he lived, unless you were to go to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, we get a picture of what it was like when Paul first visited Thessalonica and uh, proclaimed the gospel there. In Acts chapter 17, it describes his initial visit. Started off well. Paul did what he always did, which was to start by going into the, uh, the, the synagogue and opening up the Hebrew scriptures teaching from the Old Testament and teaching them about the promised Messiah. As he did, he sought to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the, the, the Savior that had long been promised. Some of the Jews were persuaded. As he spoke, a lot of the God-fearing Greeks. So it was a Greek city. There were many Greek converts to Judaism and as they heard Paul teaching the scriptures and talking about Jesus Christ, they said, he's the one. He, he's the one that we've been waiting for. And so many of them turned to Jesus. They, they responded to the message. But there were some who didn't. And, and those who rejected the, mis- the, the message stirred up, uh, uh, stirred up resentment against him. They gathered a mob together and they stirred the city against Paul, making him out to be some kind of anti-Roman anarchist of some kind, an insurrectionist. As they did, they got the city officials involved and Paul, after having just been three weeks in this city, now has to escape under cover of night, run out of town. How would you like to join that church? How would you like to join that movement of people? Like, we have our difficult, we've got a, we've got a parking lot with stones and, and some, some 
upheaval right, right now with our construction. How would you like to join a church that had been formed in the midst of a, a mob riot and whose church planter has been uh, declared a, an insurrectionist and run out of town? Like, what is it going to be like to associate with that people? What, what's going to do for your business reputation, for your, your personal relationships to know that those are the people that you're hanging out with now and you're following their teaching? What, what, what kind of challenges are going to come with, with joining a church like that? Well, in verse 6, Paul tells the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They knew that being a Christian in Thessalonica wasn't going to be easy after that start. But they also knew that Jesus had suffered for them. He had given far more for them, and they were far less worthy of it. And so they said, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to do the things that he did. And he seemed to suffer on behalf of those whom he tried to reach. He seemed to be willing to not back down from opposition when it came. To hold out hope and life to those who most needed it. They also knew that Paul had suffered to bring them the gospel. They saw what he paid in terms of the personal price on him in order to bring them that good news. And so as they received it, they became imitators. They followed Jesus. They followed Paul. They followed those who had gone before and bringing them the gospel amidst great difficulty. Because of that, verse 7 says that they then became examples to others. And in verse 8, you see that their influence and, te- and their testimony is spreading far and wide. When you are not paralyzed by fear, when you can face opposition and difficulty with confidence, not because you're just like a real confident person, you, you don't care, but you have a confidence knowing that you are secure in the center of God's will, when you have that kind of confidence and boldness, people listen. People respect that. Even if they disagree with you, they will respect a confidence that comes from a clarity regarding the things of God and convictions regarding his will. Verse 6 says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Anyone can be happy in good times. Anyone can, be, can, can put on a big smile when circumstances are good. But when there is much opposition, having joy is a different thing. It's something else going on than just the, the natural smile. This, this joy comes from the Holy Spirit. The affliction that they experienced was not, not the, uh, the, the kind... They were experiencing beatings or uh, facing physical persecution so much as social persecution. This is still an early, uh, an, at an early phase in the life of the, uh, uh, the, the early church. And so physical persecution was rare at this point in Thessalonica. But they were feeling the pressure of the people around them. In the Roman Empire, they didn't so much mind if you wanted to believe in Jesus. That was totally fine with people. Adding another God to your pantheon, to your list of of deities that you were committed, totally okay. But at the same time, they expected that you were still going to be faithful to your 
ancestral gods, that you were still going to worship the ancestors, to give your allegiance to them, to perform your religious rituals to them. They also still expected you to show up to uh, pay homage to the emperor, as they would have religious ceremonies that would express your devotion and worship to, to Caesar as God. If you were a part of any kind of merchant, uh, if you were doing any kind of business, there was some kind of merchant's guild that you belonged to. So all of the people that did your kind of work would be responsible, would be um, uh, represented by a, uh, a group of, uh, of those workers. And those workers also had their own gods. Those, those were gods that they would perform religious ceremonies in order to receive blessing, protection, success, help. And they were okay with you believing in Jesus. They just expected that you were going to continue to pull your weight and hold up your responsibilities as a good, dutiful, religious member of that guild. And when you said, you know what? I've put my faith in Jesus, and he's really not okay with all of these other gods. He's really not, not, not okay with me continuing to give my devotion to them and to participate in these religious ceremonies for them. And so you see that, that those pressures then begin to bear. So they were, in, in Thessalonica, they were feeling it from family, they were feeling it from Rome, they were feeling it from their co-workers and people who shared their profession. But they followed Jesus into into suffering for the sake of the gospel. We're not too far away from what they experienced in Thessalonica. We're not too far away from that in our country today. We're not too far away from the kind of social persecution that came upon the early church. And people will respond in different ways. Some Christians will respond by just giving in to the culture by adjusting their own morals and beliefs in order to not, not stir up too much trouble, in order to not ruffle too many feathers. They'll just bend their beliefs to fit in. Other people will go a different way. They'll hold to strong moral convictions. They'll hold to strong biblical convictions. But they'll do it in a way that's angry and critical and resentful and you have those two extremes. What was happening in Thessalonica was different because it says that they did so with much opposition, with joy from the Holy Spirit. They weren't bending to their culture. They weren't riling against it. They stood in the center following Jesus in, in the midst of that opposition, but doing so with joy from the Holy Spirit, with a fullness of what he would do in and through them as they sought to hold out light in dark places. We've been talking about a living hope, and so far we've clarified what it is. It's an experience of the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about what it looks like following Jesus in the midst of, uh, in the midst of opposition and suffering with joy from the Holy Spirit. We haven't talked about, however, what we do how we respond. 
So finally, I'd like to consider how a living hope trades false promises for a faithful God. Because sometimes people miss that, and what they instead do is enlist Jesus in their pursuit of the false promises. There's never really a reckoning with the direction of their lives. And while Jesus comes into their life, there's never a realization of a need to change direction, to reject the false promises that are really guiding and and directing their lives and let Jesus instead set the course. A living hope trades false promises for a faithful God. Look at how Paul describes the Thessalonians' response to the gospel in the end of verse 9. It says, you turn to God from idols. I just want you to notice that word turn because I think it's a word that we need to recover. We talk about believing in God and trusting in Jesus, and those are, those are good biblical terms. You see them all over the New Testament. But we often don't talk so much about turning to God. When we talk about turning to God, the recognition is the path that I am walking on up until this point is not heading me to a healthy place. It's not leading me in the right direction, so I need to turn. There needs to be a course adjustment to God, to give myself to him, to let him choose and direct my course in a a path of health, a path of strength and grace. And so there's that recognition, I need to turn. I need to go in a different direction. Here, the turning is away from idols. In Thessalonica, you had statues and temples to all kinds of gods. Uh, there were gods you could turn to for health, for success, for, for riches, for, for happiness. They had the uh, Dionysus, the god of wine and joy, right? Uh, they had uh, the gods that would offer immortality. And, and today, that's just, it's different. Stone idols aren't as, aren't as popular in our culture today but we still have our rituals and we still cling to false promises. We can still look to the world and its promises. We can still set our hearts on those things that the world holds out and and say to ourselves, that is what I most need. That is where life really should be centered. And so we take these good gifts of God, whether they be be health or, or money or success or achievement, we take these otherwise good things and we take, put them in a dangerous place. We put them in the center and we put our hope in them. We find our security in them. We give ourselves to them. They receive our devotion. And that's the reason why the word idols gets used here is all, and all through, through Scripture because they, they have a godlike control over us and we give a godlike, godlike devotion to them. Justin Buzzard says that you can tell what your idol is by examining your fears. He says the way that you understand what it is that you are truly worshiping as a God is by looking what you most fear losing. So if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty, you probably have a control idol. If your greatest nightmare is rejection, you probably have an approval idol. He says if your greatest nightmare is stress, it's probably a comfort idol. Pleasure probably has too great a grip on you, and you fear losing it. 
And if your greatest nightmare is humiliation, you probably have a power idol. He calls these things idols because of their power, because of the way that we express our devotion to them. And what he wants us to see is that they are false promises, false hopes. In their right place, they can be good. They can be healthy. They can be fine. But it's when they take a place that Jesus was intended to occupy, that they become something that they were never intended to, and they, they can crush us with their expectations. Turning to God involves serving a new master. Verse 9 says that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had already experienced ritual. They already knew about religion, but they said, this is different. This God is alive. He is truth. And they turned to him, and they turned away from those false things that they had given themselves to. Now they would serve him. Now they would give him their devotion, give him their devotion alone. And he set their minds on a different hope. After saying in verse 9 that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10 adds, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our world does not have that hope. That, that is not typically where people put their trust. That's typically not where people look to as their, their, their burning central focus and desire. It just isn't. And it wasn't where people put their hope or trust in Thessalonica in the first century either. Most people put their hope in better jobs, in better health, in better relationships. And again, there isn't anything wrong with those things, but when that becomes our central hope and our trust, when that becomes the focus of our energy and our thinking and our devotion, then Jesus moves off to the side and that thing becomes an idol to us. It becomes a false, a false hope, a false savior. So the question is, which hope is central in my life? Which hope is primary? Where am I giving myself to? What am I hoping most in? Are you waiting for the one who was raised from the dead? Are you waiting for the one who delivers us from the wrath to come? Because that has to be the, motiv the, the thing that motivates the traveler, right? That has to be his hope. There is no other hope that could, that could fuel someone and motivate someone to face such risks, to, to, to endure such cost in order to make Christ known. If you believe that God is going to pour out his wrath on the world and its sin, but that now, in his grace, because of his great love, he is holding out an invitation to forgiveness and acceptance. If you believe that Jesus is coming and that now is a time where that salvation is held out, then, then you begin to think about different things. You begin to give yourself to, to different goals. You begin to dream different dreams. Your values change. Your priorities change. The things of this world just aren't going to dominate your thinking the way they did. Is that your hope? Is that your focus? Is that what you're living for? Uh, on Friday, many of you 
know, many of you read this morning that one of our church members, Beryl Williams, was admitted into palliative care. And for those of you who have had the privilege of knowing her, you know that she has the living hope that this passage speaks of. She is just always focused on Jesus Christ and his great faithfulness to her. She has walked through, as you know, many trials. She's had many joys. It hasn't been a supernatural life in the sense of just having been removed from the day-to-day challenges that we experience. But in the midst of those, she has had that living hope with Jesus Christ as the center. And as a result, you see gratefulness, you see joy, you see confidence, you see boldness. As we visited with her and saw her joy and anticipation in the face of death, I I said to my kids, live like she lived so that you can die like she dies. And and I wasn't suggesting that you should do all of the things or or it, it wasn't so much her record of achievements, it was her singular faith focus on Jesus Christ as her Savior and as her Lord. Because it gives her and it has, she has testified to that the strength and the power, the confidence that he gives. But I didn't just say it to my kids. I said it because I needed to remind myself of those things. I was saying it to my own heart as well. I was reminding myself to keep my focus on the gospel about Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus. Keep my focus there. I was reminding myself to keep following him even when that means facing opposition, being led into suffering. And I was reminding myself to turn from the false promises of this world to Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is so much bad news that we hear about in our world today. We thank you that you have given us good news, great news about a gracious Savior who loves us. Thank you for the hope of heaven that he holds out to us as a gift of grace. Father, would you bring the gospel to us as you did to Thessalonica? Would you bring it in power that we might feel it that we might know its impact in our lives. And give us the humility to turn to you. Give us the courage to trust you. Help us not to shrink back when opposition comes. And help us to recognize the false promises that we're tempted to believe. As we center our hope in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.